Well, it's April, everybody, which obviously means it's time for our final installment of what Curtis read this week for Black History Month. <laughs> We're talking about the final section of our book, African-American Religious History, A Documentary Witness, edited by Milton Cernet. This section focuses on the last half of the 20th century, including the civil rights movement and the development of the black power and black theology movements. So let's take a look at a couple of the interesting and or important aspects of this more recent time in the history of the black church in America. One of the themes running through this section of the book is the inner debate amongst black pastors and theologians about how the church ought to engage with the cause of civil rights. There was the, we're just a spiritual community that shouldn't be getting into politics and demonstrations, position, which was espoused by, among others, Joseph Jackson, the president of the National Baptist Convention. And this position actually precipitated the breakaway and formation of the new progressive National Baptist Convention in 1961, a movement that was led by, among others, Martin Luther King Jr. There was the too moderate or too radical position, depending on which side you were on, of Dr. King himself. And then there were the more radical and sometimes more militant positions of the developing black power and black theology movements. You see the same dynamics, of course, at play today as the movement for full civil rights continues. Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail is included in this section in full. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend doing so. It's a brilliant piece of writing. I have to say I've gotten increasingly cynical over the years about the ability of famous people or things to live up to the hype surrounding them. More often than not, they're famous because of reasons other than their quality, <laughs> let's say. But in the past couple months, I've had the opportunity to watch the full video of Dr. King's speech in Washington, the I Have a Dream speech, and to read this letter, both of which I believe I saw or read when I was younger. But coming to them again as an adult, who knows a bit more about the context surrounding them, it all the more highlights that they are both absolutely stunning. They very much live up to the hype. In both, you see the effortless way that Dr. King weaves biblical allusion and argument in with philosophical allusion and argument, in with practical arguments and appealing to the better inclinations of his listeners, and it's quite remarkable. You can also see the radicalness of his vision, which has been toned down in much of the popular understanding of him today, increasingly it seems like over the years, and you see how that radical vision is entirely grounded in scripture. As a church, we've gone through the books of Jeremiah and Matthew this past year, and you can see the direct lines from their view of justice to Dr. King's. As many of you might know, the letter from a Birmingham jail is written to white moderate pastors who want the cause of black equality to be pursued in a more dignified, uh, less disruptive sort of way, and who are sure that if Dr. King were just to be more patient, all would turn out all right in the end. Dr. King responds with some scathing words for white moderates and white pastors who are more interested in order than in justice and who, quote, paternalistically believe they can set a timetable for another man's freedom. In the vein of all the prophets from the Bible, King points out that whatever tension is resulting from the actions and boycotts that his movement is taking, they are not the cause of that tension. Rather, the actions are exposing reality. For what it is. They are showing the underlying tension that is already there and bringing the inevitable consequences of that injustice out into the open. Again, it's straight out of the prophets. And like all the prophets in the Bible, the powers that be silenced Dr. King for disturbing their blinkered view of the world with reality. One of my favorite paragraphs in the piece is his response to being labeled an extremist. He says, but though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, 
As I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of affection for the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? And then later on, he says, perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. I'd say we still are. Later, Dr. King expresses his disappointment in the white church and its apathy towards the cause of civil rights. He writes, whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict those Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But today, so often the church is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent, or often very vocal, sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. It seems that his words, which, again, are to moderate and mainline churches more than the conservative ones of the time, that his words have fully come to pass. And the same warning could be extended to an even more extreme measure today for the 21st century. The final pieces in this book are devoted to the growth of a distinctively black theology, or at least the naming of it as such, because one of the points they make is that it has already existed in the black church uh, before it was named as such. I will say the pieces in the book were, I think, unfortunately, more devoted to arguing for the need for a distinctively black theology and less with outlining and explaining it. I would have liked to see the balance more the other way with selections de detailing aspects of black theology. But in any event, one of the pieces, a statement from the National Committee of Black Churchmen from 1969, explains the need for black theology in this way. Quote, Black theology is the product of black Christian experience and reflection. It emerged from the stark need of the fragmented black community to affirm itself as a part of the kingdom of God. And later they write, Black theology is a theology of black liberation. It seeks to plumb the black condition in the light of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And it requires all blacks to affirm their full dignity as persons and all whites to surrender their presumptions of superiority and abuses of power. The common argument the proponents of black theology are making is that theology, and by theology I mean thinking about God, the church, the Bible, life, the world, salvation, and all the rest, theology is and always has been a matter of synthesizing the many various stories of the Bible with the story of our own life and the experiences of our community. And since that's the case, different communities, which have different experiences, are going to synthesize differently. It's all anchored to the same biblical stories, of course, but the Bible is full of competing themes. For example, God's desire that all the world be saved and the reality of judgment, or God's special love for Israel and his broader concern for the world. And our experiences and stories influence the way we understand those competing themes. And often we get the balance of them wrong because of our cultural biases. And that then negatively impacts our understanding of God. Which is why it's important not to have a right theology. 
but rather theologies that come out of different cultural contexts and communities that might give us a rounder, fuller, more three-dimensional view of things. The Western church has historically had a right theology that runs through the likes of Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, depending on your particular strain of Protestantism, and it's flat out wrong in some places. It's racist. It's misogynistic. It's far too slanted towards the power of the state and compulsion of right belief and behavior. And then it's less spectacularly wrong in innumerable other ways as well. And this isn't because those white men who developed these ideas were idiots or evil. They're some of the most brilliant minds humanity has produced. And they were profoundly wrong in incredibly important matters because their cultural context and experiences blinded them to what the Bible was actually saying. This is why, as James Cone writes in one of the pieces included in this book, quote, Black theology located the starting point in the black experience and not the particularity of the Western theological traditions. We did not feel ourselves accountable to Aquinas, Luther, or Calvin, but to David Walker, Daniel Payne, and W.E.B. Du Bois. Not, I think it's safe to say, because those black thinkers are smarter or better than the white ones Cohn mentions, although that very well might be the case, but because their different particular experiences shape their theology in different ways and give them insights which, absent the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit, I think, are virtually unavailable to those who haven't had those experiences. Black theology, in other words, is necessary in the way Black Lives Matter is, not because it denigrates other theologies or other lives, but because it rightly elevates the particularity of Black theology to the same level given to the other theologies that we've grown accustomed to seeing as universal and right with a capital R, true with a capital T, but that are in fact no less particular, no less culturally situated. And when we listen to the diversity of voices, all trying to follow the same Jesus, the same Yahweh, but all coming from particular contexts and experiences, that kaleidoscope of different theologies, all particular rather than universal, will give us a far richer, wilder, truer, more challenging vision of the God we follow and the world in which we live. Which is, of course, what this whole little mini-series was all about. And that's how we're going to close it. I hope these little podcasts about the Black Church in America have been informative and interesting for you. They certainly have been for me as I put them together. And I hope they enriched your understanding of our God and our world. We will be back later this week with our regularly scheduled maybe I should say irregularly scheduled podcasts. Anyhow, thanks for joining me as we've gone through this book together. Bye.